artifact from a different time. Something that felt actually burdensome to me, like, oh, my, my, my life, my world is supposed to look like that back then. And that led to a profound misunderstanding uh, for me about the Book of Acts, and actually a profound misunderstanding as to what the Holy Spirit is about. And it actually starts with understanding what the Holy Spirit is up to in this event we call Pentecost. Um, you heard Todd talk, uh, talk last week about Willie James Jennings. He's this um, fantastic um, biblical scholar, African-American thinker, writer, theologian, and he's written this amazing commentary called, oh, Acts, I think. <laughs> it's actually just called Acts. Uh, but he calls Pentecost um, the epicenter of the intimate revolution. He says the whole book of Acts is about a revolution of intimacy. It's kind of a mind bender, and I didn't believe him at first until I kept reading. But Pentecost is the epicenter of that intimacy. So a few orienting details that will help that helped me translate Acts to now and hopefully will help you as well. These words that Todd introduced, introduced us to last week. Uh, empire. Empire is in the backdrop of this book of Acts. Empire basically means the, 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 Roman, the Roman Empire and the pull of the Roman Empire back then. The way that the state, the way that, that colonization, the way that um, the power of, of money all those things you can group into empire. And of course, the force of empire is at work in, in our lives today in so many different ways. The market forces, perhaps, the, the state, that tendency of, of, a, of a nation or, or of, a, of a large uh, group to, to exert a force on you that leads towards assimilation. That's the empire. Diaspora, another really big word, but it basically means People of a common nationality or a common identity that are dispersed, spread across a large geographic area. Refugees, our current reality of diaspora, that's, that's one place where we see that diaspora at work. You could even say maybe Christians right now are diaspora. We don't live in a Christian state or a Christian nation. I say thank God to that, but we can have another conversation about that another time. But the reality is, as Christians, we are scattered in the world, right? We're not this one unified block. We're scattered. And then the final word I want to put in here that, that tells us about context in Acts and also connects us to now is division. The world in Acts is a divided world, a world where the haves and the have-nots were all operating in their own bubbles. Racially, there was racial division, economic, slaves and free, religious divisions, Jews and Gentiles, all those divisions in that world back then that provide the backdrop for the book of Acts. Divisions. Does that sound a little bit like our world today, perhaps? I do see, with the help of Jennings, remarkable similarities between that divided world and our own. That world that was defined by the pull of empire, big business, nations, that, that pull of empire, and also even being dispersed, that, that uncertainty, that precariousness that's involved in being a scattered people.
people. Those things helped me to understand the connection between that time and our time. And the other thing that changed it all for me as I look at the whole book of Acts, Acts of the, what? Apostles. Apostles. But in fact, Jennings says, and many commentators say, that we understand the book of Acts better when we understand it as Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's actually what the Holy Spirit is doing in the book of Acts. That's revolutionary and exciting. And it's actually what the whole book is about. If you trace it back, is a through line. This big idea, what is the Holy Spirit up to in the book of Acts? This is my paraphrase of what Jennings says, but basically Jennings says the Holy Spirit of Jesus is relentlessly seeking to join us together. Just like that puzzle. To realize the audacious intimacy at the heart of the gospel. There's intimacy at the heart of the gospel, Jennings says. An intimacy that brings God's kingdom to bear over empire. The Holy Spirit brings us home. There's a homecoming instead of being dispersed. And the Spirit comes and brings joining where there's division. And we see that throughout the whole book. Um, Jennings offers us two guiding questions as we read through the book of Acts. Um, and if you go onto our website and you click on Act Resources, you'll see like a very rough kind of reading schedule. So if you want to walk alongside of us as we go through the book of Acts, you could take a couple of chapters a week and get midway through the book by end of November. But as you read, here are two guiding questions, really simple, that Jennings gives us. In each chapter, you ask, what is the Spirit of God doing? And what is God asking the people in this chapter to do? What is the Spirit of God doing? And what is God asking the people in this chapter to do? The answer to those two questions will always have to do with the summons of the Spirit, that great word that Todd used last week. The Spirit summing us, summoning us outwards. The Spirit pushing us out towards the other. The Spirit pushing us towards people that are different from us, that we might otherwise feel divided from. The intimate revolution begins at Pentecost. Let's read uh, a bit of Acts 1 and Acts 2. In my th former book, Theophilus, this is Luke writing, of course, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Um, Andrew, can you go back to the first slide of Acts 1? Yes. So just those bold bits, just to call attention to what those bold bits remind us about, that Jesus was speaking still about the kingdom of God. Those, those ideas that we looked at, that we studied for a long time last year, Matthew 5 to 7, the kingdom of God and what it's like, Jesus is still talking about it, even after his resurrection. And he gives them very specific instructions. Don't leave the city, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for something. Next slide. And the disciples don't get it, right? Okay, Lord, but when is this kingdom empire going to happen? When is empire going to be established? When are the Jews going to be restored to their rightful place? That's, that's what's in this question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like, okay, now? Because we know you're super powerful. Now? And Jesus is saying, no, you don't, you don't get it quite yet. Just wait. Just wait. You'll get it. And then Jesus ascends. And it's essential that he ascends. Part of me thinks, just stick around, Jesus. Like, just, just keep helping us out here. <laughs> Makes way more sense for you to stay. But no, Jesus actually needs to ascend in order for the next thing to happen. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in this first chapter? What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is getting God's people ready. And what are God's people supposed to be doing? They're supposed to wait. They're supposed to wait. And look what they're waiting for, Acts chapter two. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Thanks, Andrea. So the Holy Spirit comes, and what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit enables people to speak different languages. And more than that, the Holy Spirit enables others to hear in their own language. 
Next slide. So, so the festival of Pentecost is actually not a Christian festival as much as it is a Jewish festival. I mean, it's, it's both actually, but it begins with a Jewish festival. Everyone is in Jerusalem now celebrating the Jewish festival of Pentecost. That's why all these different nationalities are here right now in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit times it perfectly to have this event happen when all these people are here. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Bringing disconnected people together, disparate groups of people together. And what is God asking the people to do? God is asking them to move towards the other. Now, I don't know if any of you have any issues with the gift of tongues the way that I do. And this is not me being disparaging about anything the Holy Spirit does by way of a, of a prayer language or any supernatural signs. But I spent a lot of time in my younger years listening to debates about what the Holy Spirit does and doesn't do and tongues and whether you're really a Christian if you can speak in tongues and, and all the controversy around the more supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And that's a profound misunderstanding of what the Spirit is doing here. At best for me, I used to think, okay, this story here at Pentecost, it was just a cool party trick that God was just kind of doing to show that his good news was meant for all nations. It was like a, a, an illustration. Hey, I'm meant to be, you know, my word is meant to go forth to the ends of the earth, and I'm going to use these people in this moment to do it. But in fact, this is the epicenter of a revolution that is actually continuing outwards today. Because think about it, Jesus could have stuck around to communicate his message himself, like he was before, or as he ascended, he could have just like spoken this amazing word, like in a booming voice for everybody to hear. But no, now the message of Jesus needs to be transmitted, translated through human voices, human bodies. Intimacy begins as one human being speaks to another. It's not a disembodied voice from afar. It's not even Jesus who was both man and God. It's the spirit descending because Jesus has ascended and the spirit using people to communicate the love of God and to bring them near to one another. The Spirit comes and inspires human beings both to speak and to hear in their native language. Literally, the place, the language that comes from the place they were born. That's what verse 8 says. We hear them speaking in the language, in our mother tongue. Right? In the language of the place where we were born. And I want to focus on that for a moment. It's significant because language is a transmitter of culture and identity and worldview in such a unique way. We know this. September 30th is the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. 
And it's a day set aside to remind us of what took place in residential schools. The architects of Canada's Indian Act, they also knew that language was a significant transmitter of culture and identity. They sought to resolve the Indian problem, quote unquote, by taking away the mother tongue of this people group. These children who were forced to attend these schools, they were taken from their families, put into school, and forbidden to speak their native language. If you take away a people's language, you erase their identity, their connection to their history, and their people. And we all know to our shame that the church was co-opted into that diabolical plan. But that's the way of empire, right? That's what you do when you're trying to establish the bounds of your empire. When you try and colonize a people, you take away their language and you seek to assimilate them. And I don't know if that's a jarring thing for me to say here, but I say it because it's the exact opposite of what Pentecost is about. God isn't taking anyone's language away here, friends. God isn't forcing someone to learn a different language. God speaks our language. God inspires us to speak other languages for the sake of bringing them close. Jesus, the word of God, sends the spirit that we might translate the love of God for the world. In Jennings' words, the joining has begun. As an example of just the way that language conveys intimacy and being known, I'll share a little story with you, and I have my daughter's permission to share it. A few months ago, my husband, Matt, who owns a business, hired a lovely Ukrainian woman. She came to work for Matt in the embroidery department, and she is an amazing embroiderer, but she doesn't speak English very well. Google Translate is kind of the, uh, uh, the non-Christian's Pentecost moment, I guess. You just like speak into Google Translate, right? And so that's how she communicates. My daughter, Abby, works in the embroidery department, and she knew that, that Ina had already been hired. She hadn't been into work yet, and so with the help of Google Translate, I guess, she learned about four sentences of Ukrainian. So uh, Matt brought Abby into the print shop or the embroidery section and introduced them and then waited for the moment. And we thought that there would be some laughter because obviously Abby's not a native speaker. <laughs> so she starts to say, I wasn't there, but the story was conveyed very vividly to me. So Abby starts to speak in her stumbling words of Ukrainian. And we were expecting to see um, this woman's face light up and, and, and laugh a little bit. And instead, she started to cry. And she kept crying harder and harder the more that Abby spoke. And Abby was like, oh, I'm sorry. I know my accent's really bad. <laughs> but this one was like, no, 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 no. It's very good. It's very good. And my, my daughter wouldn't even claim to be a Christian these days, and yet, God used her in that moment, right? The Spirit was at work in that mini Pentecost moment of someone 
speaking this woman's language and the trauma that this woman must have undergone and the way that she just feels so homeless, so out of sync, so disoriented. For her to hear this young woman that she's never met before speak quite badly, probably, words that come from her homeland moved her. The joining has begun. I used to think that the Holy Spirit came upon me when we were in worship, like, you know, the way that, it, like, with Andrew in worship, and Andrew leads great worship, so that's not to say that the Spirit doesn't come that way. Um, and I used to think that the Spirit came, like, when I was in a quiet time or, or, or in a prayer time, eyes closed, maybe by myself when I'm in nature walking and praying, and those things are true. The Holy Spirit does work that way. But this, this part of the Bible makes me think that maybe the Holy Spirit also comes when our eyes are open. And when our eyes are reaching out in, in an uncomfortable, unlikely friendship, one of those practices that I offered us to consider this year. It's actually a spiritual practice to reach out to someone in unlikely friendship. It's, it's actually participating with the Spirit, I think. Stepping into a place where you don't really know what to say next, but the Spirit has brought you there. Maybe the Spirit would give you the words to say. Maybe the Spirit would help you translate love into a language that that person can understand. The Holy Spirit wants us to join together. Not, not in assimilation, right? Not, not even in agreement. Not in uniformity, but somehow that unity that we have transcends boundaries. And maybe we're transformed by that experience. We need all of us to be the people of God. This conviction as to what the Holy Spirit is about in the book of Acts, in us today, that conviction is behind some of the choices that we've made as leaders in this recent time. That conviction that, that there's an intimacy to be cultivated as we are face-to-face -face with one another, as we're in unlikely friendships across generations even, perhaps. That's behind our desire for, for small church. That there's a possibility of a conversation that takes a place that takes place across generations that's, that's of the Spirit as we seek to communicate with one another and understand how God is at work in, in my life as a as a 50-year-old person and in my daughter's life as a 20-year-old person. That intimacy that can be cultivated as we reach for one another across difference. It's one of the reasons why we're doing small church. Someone, someone, uh, Jim is here somewhere. Jim, um, talked to me about his experience as small church and he loves intergenerational small church because of the possibility of reverse mentoring. Isn't that a great word? That openness to being changed by someone younger than you, that maybe you'll even actually get more out of it than the other. So that intimacy, that's what we're after in, in small church. Not, not a lovey-dovey, eyes closed, just me and Jesus, all intimacy, although that's lovely too, but a, a cross-difference, intergenerational intimacy. Um, and that conviction also is around why we've, uh, we're hosting these wider embrace conversations that I trust you read about in the cap last this conviction that we have to have a wider embrace comes from scripture. It comes from that conviction that the way that we've sought to relate to our LGBTQ friends has not 
worked has not been of God. And we need to find a different way forward. And we need all of us to be in that conversation together, regardless of your own convictions on the matter. We want to be talking together. And it's risky and it's uncomfortable, but maybe the Holy Spirit is in that. I'll close with a, with a quote that comes from James Jennings. In, de in description of how the Holy Spirit is at work, this is love that cannot be tamed, controlled, or planned. And once unleashed, it will drive the disciples forward into the world and drive a question into their lives. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us and into whose lives? Where is the Holy Spirit taking us and into whose lives? I suggest to you, friends, that's the question for us today to grapple with. And if, it's, if, if this question makes you feel tired, <laughs> if this question feels like, oh no, not another thing to do, it's give me a gift, it's not a thing to do. I remind you of the words of Jesus at the very beginning of the chapter. Jesus said, wait, just wait. Wait and you will be my witnesses. Now a witness is fundamentally not doing anything, right? A witness is, is waiting, watching, alert. And that is the posture I, I think that we're meant to have. And then a willingness to act when we're inspired, when the Holy Spirit invites us.